the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Fortunes of the Imperium, time travel to the age of the dinosaurs, get a savior and a heretic all in one package, plus part 23 of our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. This time we have Jody Lynn Nye discussing her new entry in the Imperium series. This is a sequel to A View from the Imperium, and it is called Fortunes of the Imperium. It's a wonderful, rollicking uh, adventure tale with a very amusing but also kind of heroic uh, main character, very much Jeeves in space, because there is a... Jeeves like aide de camp named Parsons. And we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. But first, here's the news. There's a new Omni out from David Drake. Now, these Bain Omnis are 5 by 7 inch trade paperback size books. They're really neat, portable size, but still they're trade paperback and not a mass market size paperback. Not many publishers use this format. We use it to bundle together bunches of novels and short stories so you can get a really good range of an author's work in one volume. This month, as mentioned, we have David Drake's Dinosaurs and a Dirigible. These are five of David Drake's time travel stories. The lead story is about travel guide Henry Vicker, hunting and safari guide for time travelers who come to the dinosaur era for kicks and giggles and to shoot dinosaurs. For Henry, what happens in the police scene stays in the police scene until he runs into a situation that even time can't solve. Dinosaurs in a Dirigible is now out at booksellers everywhere. Also want to mention this month's contest. We wanted to do a contest for the new general series entry, The Savior, by David Drake and me, Tony Daniel. And frankly, we couldn't come up with any non-lame cool ideas this time. <laughs> So it's a random drawing for a copy of The Savior and its predecessor, The Heretic, both signed by Dave and me. All you have to do to have a chance to win is to send in an email with a Put September contest in the subject and say that you want to enter to win the two books. The Heretic and The Savior are books 9 and 10 in the long-running general series created by Dave and Jim Bain. The two books together form a story cycle, although you can certainly read The Savior by itself as a novel. And The Savior is now at booksellers everywhere. So hey, it did turn out to be a cool contest after all. I want to also mention here in the news section that we are going to present a four-part miniseries audio drama that is an adaptation of Eric Flint's novella Islands set within the Belisarius universe by Eric and David Drake. We are very excited about this. This is a full cast uh, original music production with a filmic soundtrack, not Goofy Foley from the Dark Age of Radio. It sounds really good. And that is coming up. We're going to present it in four parts beginning this month. So stay tuned for that. I think you're really going to like it. 
want to welcome Jody Lynn Nye to the podcast. Hi, Jody. Hi, Tony. Glad to be here. Jody Lynn Nye lives in Illinois with her husband, noted editor, world building architect, and book packager Bill Fawcett, and a cat. Her numerous works include fantasy novel An Unexpected Apprentice and its sequel, A Forthcoming Wizard. And she was co author with Robert Asprin on their legendary best selling myth series. There's also a Nye and Asprin book out from Bain, License Invoked. But I don't think that one's a myth series entry, is it? No, it is not. It is a standalone. Also for Bain, Jody has collaborated with New York Times bestselling author Anne McCaffrey on books in the Brainship series and with Anne McCaffrey and Elizabeth Moon on the Planet Pirate series. Mm-hmm. Her, her short stories, novelettes, and novellas have appeared in numerous anthologies, many from Bain and are like the stars. Oh, thank you. Those aforementioned Brainship series books with Anne McCaffrey include The Ship Who Saved the World and Ship Errant, The Ship Errant, I believe, and The Ship Who Won. Jody's Planet Pirates series with Anne McCaffrey and Elizabeth Moon include Planet Pirates and The Death of Sleep, which I think is just a Nye McCaffrey collaboration. That is correct. And she has a single author series from Bain called the Dreamland series, which is comprised of the novels Waking in Dreamland, The School of Light, and The Grand Tour. And she's edited an anthology for Bain, Don't Forget Your Spacesuit Dear. Jody has now embarked on a great new series, the Imperium series. Are we calling it the Imperium series? I believe so. Well, it's up to you. <laughs> well, we've never discussed that. <laughs> Well, for the moment. And we are now two books in. The first is A View from the Imperium, where we meet our erstwhile heroes, Lord Thomas Canago. Or is T- Canago, or is it Canago? Good. And his faithful aide de camp, Parsons. And Thomas and Parsons are back in Fortunes of the Imperium, now at booksellers everywhere. Uh, Jody, I've built the Imperium series in a lot of my descriptive and ad copy as Jeeves in Space. Uh, clearly, there's some inspiration from Woodhouse, but how close does the comparison come? Well, like Bertie Wooster, Thomas Canago is fairly overprivileged and has way too much money and way too much spare time and an imagination to make use of both. So he gets into the same kind of trouble in often many ways that uh, that poor Bertie did. Fortunately, there is Parsons to pull him back from the brink of disaster most of the time. Uh, there's There have been a few book, kinds of books in the past that uh, have been inspired by Woodhouse. And, in fact, Thomas draws on them as well. Such as, um, I assume it might be a Dorothy Sayers book or two, the Lord Whimsy uh, series, one of my favorites. Absolutely. Well, they're great favorites of mine, too. I have always adored Dorothy Sayers books. And, in fact, Thomas is far more intelligent than Bertie. He is rather more like Peter in that he's highly strung, and he's sensitive in spite of the fact that he doesn't seem to be so. So he's, his, uh, his missions in the books are things that he could actually accomplish in an intelligent fashion. But like Peter, he keeps the facade of being a silly ass about town, or in this case about the galaxy, so that nobody understands that he may be more intelligent than he looks. Yeah. Only Parsons knows the truth. Maybe not even Parsons. Oh, Parsons knows everything about him. In addition to Dorothy Sayers, what are some other influences on the series? Well, the Lyman Chronicles by Dorothy Dunnett feature uh, Francis Crawford of Lyman, who is a 
medieval nobleman, the second son of a, of a noble family, and he too has gone out to do missions on behalf of the crown, but he's a more serious character. In, in my case, this derives a great deal more from Woodhouse and Sayers than the Lyman Chronicles. But they're, they're, all, they're all members of the same family, you can tell. Well, before we get into the book proper, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about collaborating with Anne McCaffrey back in the day. Um, what was that like? It was, it was wonderful. It was a little scary. Uh, we began to work together because my husband, Bill Fawcett, was creating a, a series of game books that were intended to be, well, choose your own adventures. And these were in the days very shortly before Nintendo, which destroyed the choose-your-own-adventure game market. And he had come up with the idea of putting together choose-your-own-adventure type books that were set in licensed worlds, such as Roger Zelazny's Amber series and The Incomplete Enchanter by Fletcher Pratt and Elsprague de Camp, and of course, Anne McCaffrey. He agreed to allow these books to be done, uh, a couple of books in her world with her characters. And, of course, I stuck my hand up and said, me, 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 I want to be the one to do that. I have been playing Dungeons & Dragons for many years, and, of course, Choose Your Own Adventures are essentially D&D on paper, mm-hmm. a little less sophisticated, but with similar mechanics. Uh, so I knew both game mater- game materials, gameplay, and writing. And that, that was a fairly rare combination. This is the series that out, which is called Crossroads from Tor Books, features people like me who were able to work within the worlds that were licensed to the satisfaction of those license holders, such as Robert Heinlein and Roger Zelazny and Anne and Piers Anthony. So uh, we would create Choose Your Own Adventures, uh, Chosen Path Adventures, with, with those books. I had to approach Anne for the very first time on our very first meeting, which was at a NorwestCon in, <laughs> in 1985, to put my plot before her. And I was terrified because I admire her. Of course, who wouldn't? But she could not have been nicer. She must have really loved your, uh, your choose-your-own-adventure to, to want to work with you on a regular novel. She must have been one of her favorites in that line. I think that she was very pleased because I showed respect for the characters, and I'm a pretty good mimic, so I, I was able to come as close as possible to her style of writing, as well as asking her places where I wasn't certain. She appreciated that. I'm also the author of The Dragon Lover's Guide to Pern, which is sort of a gazetteer of the Pern world, mm-hmm. the, where the dragon riders uh, exist, describing the holds, halls, and weirs, the, the physiology of the dragons, customs, recipes, and... Uh, Had you done that before you did the Choose Your Own Adventure books? No, after, in fact. Uh, the, the Choose Your Own Adventures came first. Yeah, so you got quite versed in the Pern universe. Oh, yes. Yeah. For a while there, Anne was calling me her external memory bank, she would say. And then there was this character, was it was it Audra or Diva? And I would say, well, it was Audiva for, in this case. There is... <laughs> And I, I loved working with her. She was fantastically generous to me, and I learned a lot from her. Uh, 
Well, um, let's talk about the book now. Uh, Lord Thomas Kinago is our hero in Fortunes of the Imperium. Thomas is a bit of a silly man, but like you said, he's not dumb. Um, maybe, how would you describe him? He's, it's a comic character, but he's, he's also has serious intent. He does have serious intent. There are a lot of serious things in his past. Part of the facade he built up because his father was hurt in the war and it affected his mind. Thomas is very sensitive about any mentions of his father. And also, Thomas has a lot to live up to because his mother is the first space lord. When he uh, has to do his two years of mandatory service, naturally people are going to be a little upset that you're the boss's child uh, and perhaps mistreat you a little bit. But in, in Thomas's case, he disarms you by saying, okay, make fun of me. I'm make, making fun of myself. But he actually has a great deal of confidence. And he should, because when he is interested in something, he studies it very deeply and in an intelligent way. He goes to the experts to ask questions. He reads intent, intensively. And he talks with people about things. So when he learns something, he learns it very well. He's also got a lot of physical prowess. He's, uh, he's graceful. He's strong. And his biggest problem is probably his imagination. He always thinks that he can go off and do something uh, whether or not, that he thinks is a good idea, whether or not other people do. He's playful, but he is also very generous and cares about people. Yeah. Well, one of the his, his aide-de-camp Parsons sort of both reins him in and uses him because Parsons understands his strengths as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Parsons is this wonderful droll counter to Thomas. Uh, where did Thomas? Where did Parsons come from, and why is he so attached to this? I mean, within the story, where did Parsons come from? Why is he so attached to this uh, social butterfly? He has been a friend of the family for many, many years. His past has yet to be revealed, but he like like. Bunter, he's uh, here, there, and everywhere on, on strong, silent feet. He's, he is Thomas's Jeeves, and he feels that he wants to look after him. Growing up the way that Thomas did, uh, Parsons was sometimes the person that he turned to when he had questions uh, for guidance and for other information. Parsons taught him to fight with a sword, for example, when other people might have thought that that was entirely frivolous. In this day and age, the nobility is fairly useless except as a gene pool, but Thomas wants to be useful. He always had an inkling that perhaps there was something else he could be doing, and this was spotted early on by the people who work with Parsons, the mysterious Mr. Frank, for example. Yeah, who was a, who was a great, who was an aide to his, to Thomas's father as mm-hmm. well. So there's a, a big mystery that's going to uh, have something to do with the development of the series, no doubt. So tell us about the milieu of the book. You started to, uh, the nobility is a gene pool. This is a huge star empire. Mm -hmm. What's, uh, is it a static empire? Has technological development leveled off? Oh, no. Technology continues to develop. The Imperium itself is continuing to change and grow, uh, trying to grow stronger. The the well-being of the Imperium is of great concern to the imperial family. The trouble is that they've had a number of wars in the past decades, uh, including one with the autocracy, which is the subject of the second book. Thomas is visiting the autocracy on behalf of his cousin, the emperor. 
So occasionally star systems or whole groups of star systems have been neglected by the, the core worlds. In this case, Thomas is trying to, to strengthen ties with the, with the autocracy, which is their, I, can't, you can't call it their nearest neighbor, but it occupies the longest border with the Imperium. So it is it's a very good idea to be as friendly as possible with them. And he's dealing with an extremely young, fairly newly minted ruler. In fact, she's just a girl. She's about 14 years old. But yeah. Thomas is great with children, he, and he has a lot of interest in common, and he has no problem sitting down on the floor with somebody if that's where they want to be. Peace is, peace is young. Peace is 12 years old. This is the... And she's not human, right? She is not human. She is uh, an Uktu. They, are, they look like big geckos. They look like human-sized geckos. <laughs> Except that they're uh, coral red in color, and they have blue spots on their heads, depending on whether or not they're, they're juveniles or not. The spots fade as they get older. I kept picturing them with eyeglasses and, and accountant shades for some reason. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, of course they have accountants. They have a monetary system. Trade. <laughs> Well, they have a they have a huge uh, legal system, and it's quite easy to <laughs> to uh, run afoul of. Apparently, enormous. They have a great many rules because they don't have what the Imperium does to help keep uh, keep order. And since that's the MacGuffin in the first book, I'm not going to discuss it here. Yeah. But uh, the autocracy has been doing its best to keep peace, to keep prosperity in it, as many of its worlds as it can. Sections rise and fall, and things happen. The autocrat is doing her best, but she is very young. Yeah, tell us about the, all right, so the state of the autocracy mm-hmm. is perhaps a, a little delicate at the, at the moment. It is. In a way, it's in a transition. Um, Vesaltia, who is the autocrat, is being ill-served by some of her ministers. She doesn't realize that. She has, she has no idea how bad things have gotten. There's, there's, a good deal of corruption that she is unaware of and should have been. The people that she can trust are absolutely loyal, and the other ones are in the process of robbing the autocracy blind, and she doesn't realize that. Let's skip down and talk about, since we're, uh, the way that Thomas charms the autocrat is uh, through telling her fortune. And a theme that runs, it's called Fortunes of the Imperium for a reason. It's a, a theme that runs through the the book. Thomas's newest hobby is divination and fortune telling. Uh, I bet you had a lot of fun. It seemed like you were just having a great deal of fun uh, going over the methods, and I bet you did some research on this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, actually, Thomas's hobby is not divination. It's superstitions. He's interested in how they affect people. Now, along the way, in order to make uh, people react to these superstitions, he has to be able to put them forward. He doesn't take the fortunes he tells seriously. It's a game to him. Mm-hmm. It's fun. But other people take it very seriously, as you probably saw in the sections uh, on board the Bon Chance and, in fact, in the uh, autocracy itself. Yeah, and Thomas is having so much fun with it that he gets into a little trouble. Again and again <laughs> and again. He can't, he can't resist. And he also gets suckered into things. Uh, there are... There are times when he knows perfectly well he shouldn't be doing things, but he gets persuaded. And it really doesn't take much to persuade him. 
when it isn't a matter of life and death, and he knows it isn't a matter of life and death, things slide a little bit. Well, I mean, he is the cousin of the emperor. He's used to being able to sort of get off. Uh, Well, he is the sixth cousin of the emperor. They share a great-great-great-great-grandparent. And it so happens that Shojin Twelfth is a little bit of a stickler for rules. And if Thomas doesn't play up in his presence, he treats his cousin with great respect. But he is absolutely not above invoking his name. Yeah, Thomas is a a bit of an opportunist when he needs to be. (laughs) Of course. He takes advantage of situations for the fun of it. The the cover is beautiful, by the way, on this one, don't you think? I think the cover is fabulous. When I saw it, I was just delighted. This is, I think it's a Dave Mattingly cover. Dave Mattingly. Yeah, he did a great job. Uh, We've, of course, interviewed him on the podcast. So let's go back to the characters, because um, the, the book is just crackling with fun characters mm-hmm. to, uh, to follow. What about Jill? Jill Nicorincorn, uh, Thomas's cousin. Runcorn, yes. Yeah. Is she a love interest or not? I sort of thought I detected chemistry, but of course it's somebody else that's after Thomas at the moment. Actually, more than one of them is after Thomas. Yes. Uh, it would be a great coup for them to be able to marry Thomas, but like Bertie Wooster, he is not interested in having a permanent relationship just now. Jill is his friend. Mm-hmm. He and Jill were raised as children together, as, as his cousin Zan. Uh, they're a whole posse of cousins that go around together. In this case, Jill needs to leave town, so she ends up coming with him. Maybe you should go into why she needs to leave town, because that's a, it's, it's not really a spoiler, and it sets up the books. Uh, really isn't. Uh, she she ticked off somebody. Uh, there there is a resort that the nobles like to frequent, and some place in it that had been reserved for ordinary people. In this case, a a crime lord uh, and his sister. She got very angry that this space was not available for her use and. Uh, this man couldn't resist her, and she slapped him, <laughs> and she, she insulted him, and he has a really, really terrible temper. Uh, the people, the powers that be thought that it would be good for her not to go out and about because she has kind of pushed the envelope of her attraction. So she, she wanted to leave and get away from him for a while. Also, they have been looking for the possibility that they could arrest the Bertus for the things that the Imperium pretty much knows are going on, but they really lack proof. They lack direct content, uh, direct evidence that the Bertus are involved. They, the Bertus are Skana and Nile, uh, and I, they seem like real, like the nouveau riche mobsters, like uh, Jersey Coast types, maybe Schnooky. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, not quite. But uh, it, but they are they're a little they're rough around the edges. They don't mind getting down and dirty if they need to. Passages where we we're we're usually in Skana's point of view, I think. Yes, mostly. And um, it, she just takes everything so uh, matter of factly, as if she's in a regular story. But she's killing people right and left, and and ordering this and that. Um, and she was after uh, after she was going to kill Jill, right? 
she was thinking about it. She was getting yeah. distracting Niall from what he's doing yeah. so that he would expose himself is a very bad thing. Yeah. Niall's a bit of a psychotic. A little. Yeah. He's a very dangerous man. He really is. Yeah. I see him almost like a Bob Hoskins character. Uh, now that I think about it. Uh-huh. Uh, short, chunky, fierce, and accustomed to getting his, his way because he set things up so that they should go forward in a certain fashion. And he gets very angry when they don't. Mm-hmm. Maybe like that Joe Pesci uh, mobster in Goodfellas who just slams the guy's head into the car over and over again when he insults him. Niall would probably be a little more fatal. Yeah, they, this, you don't want to get on the bad side of the uh, Bertus. Really don't. Which but Jill has done. A great deal of the time, and one of the reasons that they have their secretary is to avoid having... Niall actually get involved in causing a problem on his own. As I said, they, they're trying to keep their hands clean. You have uh, different viewpoint characters, but you tell Thomas's uh, story is first person. He narrates himself. But the other character viewpoints are third person. Um, why'd you do that story-wise? And did it, was it useful as a writer to be able to switch back and forth? Oh, yes. Yeah, I... I have no problem telling stories from the first person. Working with Bob Aspirin, for example, uh, the myth adventures are told first person from the point of view of Skeev as a rule. And I have, I have done that in other things. Besides, uh, the stories uh, told by P.G. Woodhouse are from Bertie Wooster's point of view. Is it useful just to be able to get into other characters' heads so that you can, uh, you can develop that side of the story? It, I, I find it to be a very useful tool. With Thomas, you wouldn't get the flavor of his thoughts if I were telling it in the third person. You would have to rely upon his dialogue and his actions, and I think it's mm-hmm. a lot more fun to see his thought processes. Yeah. He really is. When you see what he's after, um, you really see that he's, he's sympathetic. Uh, he's heroic in his way. Mm-hmm. Um, he would sacrifice himself if he needed to. It was... It is entirely possible that he could throw himself into the breach for, for the sake of others. Well, tell us a little bit more about the divination, because it take, plays such an important part in the book, and there's some fun ones, like um, there's crystal balls. Um, he, has, he has a crystal ball. He has a very lovely crystal ball. <laughs> he rather envies the saltiest, which happens to be made of rutilated crystal. This all comes from a hobby that I used to have back when I was a tween. Uh, I, was, I taught myself to do trigonometry so I could cast horoscopes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I still have a lot of my books around. So a lot of this comes from things that I already knew and things that I just had to brush up on. And really some of it is tremendously interesting in the way that people react to it as much as anything else. Did you ever uh, read tarot cards yourself? Oh, yes. Yeah. Have you ever driven somebody <laughs> to tears by doing so? <laughs> As Thomas does occasionally. Uh, that, let's call that fortune teller client privilege. Uh, I see. All right. We also have a we have a serious and, and um, sympathetic side of the book. This is the Coppers. Her and her family. Uh, McKenna and her children. Uh, I I'm not very susceptible to child in danger plots, but this one really got to me. <laughs> there was I was worried about those kids. What's the situation the McKenna that the Coppers find themselves in? They fall afoul of the smuggling clause. There, there are thousands of regulations and rules that the autocracy has put in place to try and protect themselves from illegal smuggling. But in particular, weapons of war 
is one of the fiercest. There is, as you can tell, a, a coup brewing, and we don't know until quite late where it's coming from, but the means in which an entire scout uh, fighter is smuggled in into their ship puts them in grave danger. They, <laughs> It's right there. It's in their ship. And it's in a place where it could not be accessed except by cutting into the tank and placing it there, which meant it would be impossible for the coppers not to know it was there. So they know they're not guilty, but they have no idea how that thing got there. They cannot prove that they aren't responsible. Yeah. And the penalty is, of course, death. death. <laughs> and, uh, everything has a penalty of death, it seems, in the autocracy. Pretty much. It's the ultimate deterrence, uh, like, like the death penalty in other countries and other places, it can be used on innocent people, which is a bad thing, of course. But in this case, it's very difficult for them to prove their innocence. Yeah. They have a, a witchu, which is a large, furry, white creature uh, with large, dark eyes that is their defense attorney. Unfortunately, he is also the defense attorney for a number of other accused people. Not all of them are being accused of smuggling weapons of war. They just happen to be one of them. Yeah, he's a great little vignette character in himself. He's just he's so uh, unmoved by their plight. He's such a lawyer. Well, he is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's no way you can get a tear out of that guy. So the he's, Honestly, he's not unsympathetic, but he can't get dragged into their problems because he has to defend them. He must look at it in, a, in an objective fashion. And what he sees is going to be very difficult to defend against. He knows the law. He is there for them. Mm -hmm. Comes, he sees them, he visits them, he brings them things, he tries to get them privileges. And he's as hogtied by their laws as anything else. He is there for them. His professional expertise is limited, and he knows that. He's trying to make them understand it. Yeah. Well, it's quite a... It would take a lifetime or two to get the uh, autoc autocracy's legal system down, I imagine. Definitely, witches are fairly long-lived. Well, he's getting a start at it. Well, what? tell us a little bit about the comic comedy writing. This is, I mean, I, it's not, I, there's places where I laughed out loud, but this is a comic novel, um, which is different from stand-up or anything like that. It's not joke after joke. Um, how do you go about it, and what, what, what's your aim? How do you feel about doing it? I feel that, well, they, they say that comedy is, is tragedy plus time, but comedy is also tragedy plus distance. Things that, bad things that are happening to other people far away can be funny because it's not happening to you. And in Thomas's case, dreadful, terrible things happening to somebody else at a distance could be amusing. In his, in his case, happening to him frequently can be very funny. He's, he's perfectly willing to laugh at himself. But because he can be so ridiculously out there in terms of what he wants to do, he has grandiose plans, he has great ideas, and some of his actions lead to misunderstandings, per and perfectly reasonable ones, too, such as people take it seriously that he's telling fortunes when all he's trying to do is study human nature, or in this case, up to nature, and witchu nature, and croctoid nature. One of the other things I love about Thomas is the way that he turns almost any criticism or jibe into a compliment of the other person, mm -hmm. uh, which he just does it in clever ways time after time. 
It's a wonderful uh, trick of his and of yours. Thank you. Thank you. He's, he's a wonderful person. I, I very much enjoy writing him. So what are you working on now? Well, uh, I am working on the third Thomas book, and I'm looking forward to finishing that. Um, this is, it will be called Rhythm of the Imperium. Ah. All of these titles refer to, in some way, to Thomas's latest enthusiasm, his yes. hobby. The first one is called View from the Imperium, and his hobby in that one was photography and image, image cap, capture, image transfer. The second one, Fortunes of the Imperium, is about superstitions. And the third one is called Rhythm. Mm-hmm. I'll leave you to figure out what it's about. He thinks I might have an idea. So Thomas's uh, many Thomas's changes changes enthusiasm quite regularly. So we can look forward to a lot of <laughs> a lot of Imperium novels in the future. He's, he's frank about the fact that maybe next year he'll be interested in something else, and and he'll put his toys aside from from the previous uh, enthusiasm. But he does get he gets pretty completely grounded in the thing. It's not uh, he, he's an amateur, but he's not a rank amateur. No. No, he does take it seriously when he's in it. If he were to take up, uh, well, as, as he had, uh, and and goes back to occasionally racing, he's very proficient at that. He's careful, and he's good. And now he can fortune tell for the rest of the. Uh... <laughs> if he if he feels like it, it's a great party trick. You know, if if he goes someplace and someone says, "Oh, Thomas, we want to do." Uh, crystal reading, or the the one that I invented for this book, Condimentomancy. <laughs> Tell us about that momentarily, please. I want to. Oh, yeah. I came up with that a long time ago, and I, I noticed that if I was in a specific mood, if I were, for example, feeling impatient, um, the way that I put mustard on a sandwich was spiky, and if I was feeling creative or frivolous or or happy, it tended to be more swirly patterns. So. I thought, hey, you know, if I notice these things, surely Thomas would. Say it again. Condimentomancy. Condimentomancy. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I'll have to watch my condiments in the future to make sure that I'm not giving too much away now that I have to. Section, I read a section from this at LonCon, including that part, and I... People said, we're, we're going to watch what we do with, with sauce in the future, we're, we're, and I bet they will. Be very careful. Mm-hmm. Well, the book is Fortunes of the Imperium by Jody Lynn Nye. It's the sequel to A View from the Imperium and book two in the Imperium series, and it is at booksellers everywhere. Jody, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for asking me. And now, here is part 23 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic, as read by Bronson Pinchot. This portion of Hard Magic is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free, or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Now, here's what has gone before. It's the 1930s in America, but it's an America that has been magically changed. In the 1860s, a handful of people from all walks of life were visited with special magical talents, and each generation more are so affected. These people are called actives. Most actives use their power for good, but some don't. Jake Sullivan is a private eye and an active heavy, the type of active that controls the force of gravity. 
Jake has been recruited by a mysterious secret organization of actives dedicated to seeing humanity through a possible magic-based apocalypse. They are known as the Grimnor Knights. If the Grimnor Knights are to be believed, the evil forces of magic introduced into the world have reached a peak, and the apocalyptic finale for humanity may be about to begin. Here is Bronson Pinchot with part 23 of the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Hard Magic. His eyes fluttered, open enough so that he could see who was at his bedside. He made out the scarecrow form and shiny baldness, decided that it was John Moses Browning, and closed his eyes again because any light was particularly painful today. Yes, John, Pershing whispered. Did Garrett recover the device? We've not heard anything yet, Browning replied. I see. That meant that there was another reason for the visit, and Pershing already knew what it was. Browning was his second-in-command, one of his oldest surviving friends, a deeply honorable man, and keeping the truth from him was more painful than the cancers eating his bones. Browning sighed. I'm concerned, Jack. The chairman's trying to reassemble a weapon that blew a thousand mile hole in Siberia, he laughed, but it came out as a painful wheezing noise. I'm a touch concerned myself. That cog, Einstein, figured that it was such a release of power that it would have been felt in other realities. Concern is an understatement, but we both already know that... Browning paused. That's not why I'm here. I'm a little worried about your recent recruiting. Pershing would have nodded if he could have. Please continue. In the past, we have always thoroughly checked people out before we revealed ourselves to them. That's always been the grim noir way. That's the only reason we've stayed alive as long as we have. The chairman's spies are everywhere, and if we brought one of them into our ranks, it would destroy us. Pershing knew that Browning was utterly correct. It was the single biggest reason he could no longer even trust his own government or even the army that he'd helped build. The Imperium's tendrils were deep into everything. Our numbers are too few. We've lost so many good men. <clears throat> If we do not increase our numbers, we will fail. I agree, but first it was Delilah Jones. We barely knew anything about her except that her father was a bitter, miserable crank of a man who would surely have drunk himself to death if the Imperium hadn't found him first. And she herself is of questionable character, a criminal even. We've recruited criminals before, John. They can go places that others can't. You're just offended because she was a New Orleans whore. Browning sighed. No need to be vulgar, but yes. She did what she had to do to survive. When she discovered her power, 
she turned to more lucrative crime. You say that like it's a good thing, and this heavy you have running around with Garrett and Heinrich, he's a murderer. Pershing couldn't deny that. And a war hero. He knew that if Browning found out the other reason he'd recruited Sullivan, he'd surely think that the pale horse's curse had finally driven him mad. It balances. Well, we should just take a trip up to Rockville and clean the place out then. Either one of them could have been co-opted by the Imperium. We've not investigated either as we normally would. We can't spare the manpower to investigate anyone. The American Grim Noir had borne the brunt of the secret war against the Imperium. The international leadership had their own fights, as the Imperium was active in virtually every corner of the globe. But it seemed to him that all the tough jobs had been assigned to his people, and the Americans had paid for it in blood, as usual. And now you're letting this young lady, Miss Sally Faviera, stay here. Do you plan on giving her the oath as well? Oh, please don't tell me you think that little thing is an Imperium spy, he snorted. Unless the Imperium has found a magic kanji for channeling the power of irresistible cuteness, no, of course not. She's a wonderful child, but she's only a child. Consorting with us has put her in danger. I've led men into battle that were younger, Pershing responded. Those were men. Most of the knights of the Grim Noir were male. Most of their female members served in a support or intelligence fashion. Brutes, like Delilah, were historically an exception for reasons so obvious that even the harshest misogynist had to agree. You want to start sending women into this meat grinder? Are we that desperate? Look around. We've taken... Seventy percent casualties over the last decade. We can't protect the honor of the fairer sex. If our entire nation is in slavery under the chairman's heel, it's not right. Pershing gave a noncommittal grunt. She's a girl, but she's also a traveler. We both know... How rare those are. Think of the possibilities. Look what the Imperium has accomplished with their travelers. Pershing couldn't see, but he knew Browning well enough to know that he would be shaking his head sadly. You would turn that little girl into our own personal shadow guard? The Imperium had a few pure active units that they knew of. The Warrior Iron Guard the Experimental Unit 731, and the Shadow Guard Assassins. They were often referred to by their common name, Ninja, and the Grim Noir had lost many to their poisoned blades over the years. We're better than them, but we'll do whatever must be done to win. Our way of life, our freedom depends on it. That's the same thing you said to Traveling Joe twenty years ago, if you recall, and he walked away and never looked back. He'd rather be a farmer than another murderer in the night, 
At least there's honor in milking cows. There was a rustle of cloth as Browning got up from the chair. Pershing had caused quite the stir when he'd been the first grim noir leader to invite coloreds into the society. He doubted anyone would be surprised should he start drafting children. Fine. We'll give the young lady a home and a proper education. Lord knows she needs one, and I won't ask her to do anything but mark my words. Her nature is such that she'll want to give some payback to those imperial bastards. And to think that I'd come up here worried that you were losing your judgment. Rather, it turns out you're as ruthless a man as ever. I have a history of winning wars, John. That's why I was given this job. The door closed and he was alone in the dark. Browning was right to question his wisdom. It did seem foolhardy on its face, but he had his own reasons for bringing in these new people. It was time for some fresh blood. He no longer knew whom he could trust. In 1908, he'd led a small team on a suicide mission. The Tunguska event had been a mere test firing of Tesla's Geotel. If the peace ray was a scalpel, the Geotel was a battle axe. Only by the grace of God had they succeeded just as the blue pillar was starting to form over the east coast and the power itself was rising from the bowels of the earth. The Knights of New York had succeeded only by the narrowest of margins. He'd been so enraged that if they'd had the ability, Pershing would have turned it around and fired it at Tokyo. With that being an impossibility, he'd wanted the thing destroyed, but the international grim noir leadership had vetoed that, in the hope that someday they might be able to utilize it themselves. He'd broken up the device and given it to the surviving members of his team to keep safe, only the inner circle of the society knew who had the pieces. But now those men were dying one by one, which meant that someone had betrayed them. He alone knew where the final piece was, but did not dare tell any of his people. He needed outsiders. The bedroom door flew open with a bang. It's Garrett, Lance shouted. There was a bustle of movement and the nervous voices of at least three people as the focal circle was activated. Of course, Pershing hadn't felt the contact. His fingers had become so arthritic that his grim noir ring couldn't be worn anymore. The flash of white light could be seen through his eyelids, but he didn't complain. He was as anxious for the news as everyone else. Garrett's voice came through a moment later. Christensen is dead. The device is gone. That was part 23 of the complete audiobook Serialization of Hard Magic by Larry Correa, read by Bronson Pinchot. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a robot butler wired for acerbic commentary while serving mint juleps and bowls of plasma-formed gems, mined by space dwarfs from the heart of a star, as well as our kudos and gratitude for Jody Lynn Nye, author of Fortunes of the Imperium. 
Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.